Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Okay, our last discussion was debunking the Jesus Seminar, and now debunking the prosperity gospel. Most of you had not heard about the Jesus Seminar, but I guarantee that after I explained to you the portrait of Jesus they created, you certainly had heard of some of the influences of the Jesus Seminar, probably on your nightly news. So uh, debunking the prosperity gospel, the prosperity gospel is something you certainly have had uh, heard about, or at least some of you or maybe friends or family have been influenced by some of the individuals who preach this prosperity gospel. This is a a very rapidly growing movement. You have probably heard of it. Let me see. Has anyone heard of, say, Benny Hinn? Okay. Kenneth Copeland? <laughs> Kenneth Hagen? I feel like I should be gargling with holy water while I'm saying these names. <laughs> All right. So you can see this is, a, uh, this is a problem that's growing. It's very influential. Some of you uh, may have relatives, friends who watch these guys on TBN right? Uh, Trinity Broadcasting Network. Some of you may have parents who are often the victims of these televangelists, elderly sitting at their home, waiting for their children to come visit them, and watching on TV for entertainment and maybe some spiritual insight. They come upon Trinity Broadcasting Network, and they watch someone like Kenneth Copeland or Benny Hinn and before you know it, the checkbook is out or the credit card in the phone. And you don't find out it, about it until a few months later when the bank account is empty. And, Mom, what happened? We were where's the money? We were trying to help you, you know, with the bills. And, oh, well, Benny Hinn promised me if I send him my $10,000, it's a seed that will grow into $100,000 in a month. Mom, it's three years later. Well, I need to have more faith. So, anyone ever encountered something like this? Yeah. Okay, so what is the prosperity gospel or the word faith movement, as it is often called? The prosperity gospel or word faith movement is a false gospel being preached by a rapidly growing number of Protestant preachers that teach that the Christian is supposed to be healthy and wealthy and that the health and wealth can be attained through visualization, imagination, and speech, or as they often call it, positive confession. Positive confession. If you ever hear somebody talk about positive confession, throw holy water on them immediately. There are many biblical proof texts that are used to support this erroneous gospel. That is, if you think about it and speak it, it will come to pass. 
me give you a quick example before we get into the scriptures. I remember listening to the radio to one of these preachers one time. This is one of my pastimes. I listen to these guys. So, uh, so uh, he was talking about, he said, he said, if you have a health problem, if you have a bad leg, you say to your leg, leg, you are a good leg. And your leg will get better. If you're poor, you don't have enough money. Don't think about that. Think about a lot of money and speak to your bank account and say, bank account, you are fat. <laughs> now, I almost drove off into the ditch. I was on a road in Nebraska. <laughs> I, I was laughing so hard and crying at the same time. <clears throat> so the idea that you can have anything if you only have a strong enough belief or faith, as they call it, that it will happen, it is usually supported, supported with Mark chapter 11. Let's turn there. Mark chapter 11, verse 22. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God, verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, even for a, a jet airplane, believe that you receive it and you will. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, we'll talk about that at the end, but the, the preachers of this false gospel take that text as a springboard and a support for this idea that whatever you want and then speak with faith, and what they mean by faith is this power of the mind, it will come to pass. If you want a $26 million jet airplane, as Kenneth Copeland wanted, <laughs> so that he could fly from LA to New York in two and a half hours to make more money, then if you want it and you speak it, it'll happen. Kenneth Copeland now has a $26 million jet, along with two or three others. So you can see as they, and he promotes this on TV. Look what I did with my word. He showed his jet to those who had purchased it for him. Do you see? Do you see? I wanted it, I spoke it, and it happened. They also turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Don't worry, we'll talk about these passages again. Verses 19 through 20. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power in us? The, his power in us who believe? You hear that language? What is His immeasurable power? Immeasurable power. His power in us who believe. According to the work, the working of His great might, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus, when he raised him from the dead. So what Jesus did at the cross gave the Christian, the born-again Christian, immeasurable power, the power of God in themselves. 
This is not what Paul is teaching the Ephesians. We'll come back to it. That this faith, which is understood to be an actual power or force based on these latter passages, can even cause life or death. This is supported with Proverbs 18.21. If you watch these preachers, you'll see they, got, they have about 10 or 15 texts. They all use the exact same text to support their doctrines. Proverbs 18.21. So go to your wisdom literature, your Bible. Proverbs 18.21. What is the extent of this word faith power within you? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So death, this is Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, the author of Proverbs says. The preachers of this false gospel take that to mean that you can have not only a $26 million jet airplane, but you can also cause life or death with your words. So you have to be very careful what you say about other people and about yourself. If you speak life about yourself, then you will live. You will live well. If you speak death about yourself, you will die. They also support this with Numbers 14.28. You can turn there, Numbers 14.28. You notice in the last session we didn't turn much in the Bible. That's because the promoters of those errors didn't believe much about the Bible. These individuals at least use their Bible to promote their errors. So we can at least get into our Bible here. Numbers 14, 28. Numbers 14, 28. As I live, says the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies will lie in this wilderness. So the, the people who are supposed to go into the promised land, you've probably read Numbers 13 14 about the, the spies that go in and then they're supposed to follow them in. They're afraid to go in and they said, if we go in there, we will die. And God says, what you have said, I will do to you in the wilderness, not in there, because you didn't trust me. So here they spoke, we will die. And so now they're going to die. Life or death in the tongue, as the author of Proverbs says. Of course, this is a complete misinterpretation of the text. It's taking this text completely out of context. But what they do is they use one verse. You'll never see them read on and on more than two or three verses. It's typically one verse from a passage of the New or the Old Testament, and then they wax eloquently for two or three hours. I think I mentioned those of you who were, here, who were there yesterday for the biblical apologetics. I mentioned to you when I was at that Seventh-day Adventist lecture, uh, or lecture, Seventh-day Adventist worship service on a Saturday morning with a friend of mine, and we came out after two hours, and he said, wasn't that the most biblical service you've ever been to? And I said, no, actually, I think it was the least biblical service I've ever been to. I'm very unhappy about what I experienced. <laughs> How can you say that? He was quoting the Bible the entire time. And I said, no, he wasn't. And I mentioned to you who were at the, the seminar yesterday, he had a big floppy Bible with shiny gold edges. And the whole time he walked on stage like this. 
He quoted from the first verse of uh, Psalm 92, I think. I can't remember. It was one of the Psalms, the first verse. And then he jumped from there, talking about something that had nothing to do with that verse, into their missionary work in South America and how the Word tells us we need to be doing this and to be supporting the ministry. For two hours, went on and on. He had quoted one little verse, and he didn't really even talk about that verse. So these individuals will do likewise. You'll see televangelists on TBN. They'll pick up their Bible, one verse, and they'll go for two hours. <clears throat> the common name for the movement, they don't call their own movement prosperity gospel, typically. They typically call it the word faith movement or word of faith movement the identifying relationship between word and faith, word and faith. Here, faith is a power, a force that you put into the vehicle of a word, and then it comes to pass. They get this language from Romans chapter 10, again, a misreading of it, but Romans chapter 10, verse 8. Romans chapter 10 Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips, and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. You see? Okay, that has nothing to do with what Paul was saying in that context. It has nothing to do with the prosperity gospel. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the word of faith that they preach. He's the gospel. But these individuals see here the word of faith which we preach, this gospel, this new gospel they are preaching is what Paul's referring to here. Word of faith. Word faith movement or word faith. You'll sometimes hear it. So... <clears throat> The, these are, we're looking at the biblical proof text here for, the, for this erroneous gospel. Second category, the idea that Christians should have perfect health. So first there we were looking at the power of the word, this idea. And then second now, that a Christian should have perfect health. And that this is supported by a number of biblical passages. Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and bore our diseases. If Jesus did not take your infirmities, and, uh, well, then you still have them. But if Jesus took your infirmities, if he bore your diseases, then you shouldn't have them. If you have them, it's due to a lack of faith. Due to a lack of faith. The idea is also supported by these preachers in the third epistle of John. If you go to the end of your Bible, just before the book of Revelation, you come to the little epistle of Jude, and then you come to, if you rewind a bit, you come to, Third John, the third epistle of John, a very short little epistle just before Jude. 
He says in verse 2, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that all may go well with you, and that you may be in health. I know that it is well with your soul. So I pray that all may go well with you. I, know that, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in health. Therefore, not only should you be healthy, but that everything else should go well as well. Some translations there, that you may be prosperous, that you might be prosperous in some translations. Does anyone have that in their translation? That you might be prosperous. They love this verse. You'll be healthy and prosperous. So because this text also mentions prosperity, it is also used to support the idea that the Christians should have total monetary prosperity. So from where did this idea come, this movement? The early roots and influences of the movement come from the pseudo-Christian cults of the religious science and Christian science organizations and other such movements of the late 19th to 20th century that taught that you can have good health or a lot of wealth, really whatever you want, through positive thinking, visualization, and prayer. The real father and pioneer of the movement, however, and certainly the one who introduced it into mainstream American Protestantism, was E.W. Kenyon, E.W. Kenyon, K-E-N-Y-O-N, for those of you who are taking notes. E.W. Kenyon, a Baptist preacher who lived from 1867 to 1948. Kenyon coined the phrase so popular today among these preachers, what I confess, I possess. You'll hear this phrase in their mouths and variants of it among all of them in any of their, uh, any of their preaching. The next generation of preachers following Kenyon is headed up by Kenneth Hagin. Kenyon is now dead, of course, died in 1948. Kenneth Hagin is still alive, a major disciple of Kenyon. Kenneth Hagin is kind of the modern leader of this movement, the modern father of the movement, at least the living one. Hagin claims strange spiritual powers, such as out-of-body experiences, visions, regular visits to heaven and hell. I heard him the other night, oh, it was Copeland, I'm sorry, uh, talking about Satan speaking with him, arguing with him. Let's take a look at a video clip that I think exemplifies his ministry well. Notice in the clip, the man sitting in the chair in front of him when he walks toward the audience wearing a tan suit and laughing uncontrollably. This man in the tan suit in the chair is Kenneth Copeland, his major disciple and probably the most powerful influential preacher in this movement today. I, I, uh, I know two exorcists personally and one of them was telling me about uh, his concern with a lot of these types of Pentecostal meetings and things like that, that a lot of the things he sees in the descriptions, you also see in an exorcism. Uh, people slithering on the floor like a snake, uncontrollable laughter, barking like a dog. Uh, one of the women later on in the video starts howling. 
<clears throat> so that was Kenneth Hagen. As I said, the man in the tan suit was Kenneth Copeland, one of Hagen's disciples. That was a young Copeland there. And you've seen him more recently. He's aged quite a bit, possibly under demonic influence. And possibly the most influential and wealthy among all the characters we will discuss this evening. He's the guy that has the $26 million jet, uh, along with plenty of other jets. Kenneth Copeland is probably also the most bold in his unorthodox and often blasphemous teachings. I apologize for some of the things you'll hear him say. Here is a video clip of just one of these. So you can also see, certainly we're not talking about just a few theological errors here. Okay, We're talking about serious blasphemy, uh, not just some minor unorthodoxy, major blasphemous statements, blasphemous doctrines that are being swallowed by their audiences. Kenneth Copeland, as I said, is one of the more bold, bold teachers uh, making these types of statements, but the others follow along because Hagen, the modern living inheritor from Kenyon, basically has determined Copeland as his primary disciple. So nobody in this movement ever contradicts Copeland. <clears throat> One of the more charismatic characters, and a good friend of Copeland, as they all like to be, is a preacher by the name of Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn has as many aberrant teachings as those already mentioned, but he is probably the most famous for his healing ministry, in which he claims that God has healed countless people through his hands. Those who have challenged him and questioned the validity of his healings, looking for some documentation possibly, have likewise received challenges in return. Those, uh, let's see here, what else, sorry. Frederick Price is another major figure in this movement. Frederick Price is in Los Angeles. He has identified himself as the, quote, chief exponent of name it and claim it idea. All of the others have the same concept, but he actually takes pride in being the one who is the chief exponent of the idea. He has said such bold public statements as that he does not even allow sickness in his home even though his wife has been treated for pelvic cancer. Here's a clip of him commenting on Proverbs 18. Remember that? Life and death in the tongue, Proverbs 18, and the power of the word. This is Frederick, Frederick Price. All right, so that is Frederick Price in Los Angeles. There are many more of these preachers involved in this movement, new ones appearing every day. But for the sake of time, let's move now to a summary of their theology, if it can be systematized. As we already discussed, these preachers teach that faith is a power, a force, based upon their interpretation of certain passages in the Bible, such as Ephesians 1, 19-20 and 3.20 that we looked at at the beginning. Even God, they say, has this faith power. This faith is God's power and its, and its vehicle, so to speak, is His Word. When God spoke in faith, 
He created the world. Let there be light. He did that by this faith power he had. He spoke what he believed would come to pass, and it happened. Having created the world by his faith, his faith power, God then created man according to their interpretation, because the Bible says that man is made in the image and likeness of God, then man is an exact duplicate, a God just like the Creator God. Adam and Eve had what we would call superhuman power. They could do anything. Benny Hinn has suggested that Adam could fly into outer space. He was a god. They reason further that if man is an exact replica of the Creator, then the Creator must look just like a man. Kenneth Copeland has taught that God and Adam and Jesus all look identically. God, like Adam, like Jesus, is about six foot tall, weighs around 200 pounds, and has a hand span of about nine inches. Copeland calculated God's physical size based upon the words of Isaiah 40, verse 12, that says that God measured, measured the sky or the universe with his, the span of his hand. And since a span is approximately nine inches, Copeland says he took his ruler out and measured his hand. His was about eight and a half, so he figured God must be about his size. And God lives on a mother planet called heaven. Though man was created with God's nature, when he broke the law that God had spoken and accepted rather the words of Satan, he lost God's nature and inherited the nature of Satan, a death nature. Man's change in nature empowered Satan, who then became the ruler of the earth. God had no more authority on earth. He would be trespassing if he showed up. He was powerless. That's why he called Abram. When Abram heard the word of God and accepted it and made a covenant with God, it gave God a foothold power on earth again through the words of Abram. For these preachers, God has no power to influence you or this world except through your word, except through your word as an inheritor of the covenant of Abraham. God can only act, He can only unleash His power through the words of men on earth. He needed word vehicles for His faith power. And now He had a foothold once again in Abram. Through the descendants of Abram, God's faith power kept getting stronger and stronger as it was spoken more and more on the earth until finally it was so strong that it created a new man, a new Adam, Jesus Christ. So for them, Jesus is a, just a new Adam. He's a second Adam. He is not divine in the sense that the eternal, the eternal God. This was, he is a created being, a created God. When Jesus accepted the sins of the world and voluntarily went to the cross and died, he, like Adam, gave up his God nature, his nature of life, and accepted the nature of Satan, the nature of death. 
Then Satan took Jesus into hell, and with the demons mocked and beat him for three days, until there was almost nothing left of him. But this was God's trick. Satan had been tricked. Satan only has authority over those who have disobeyed God. He had acted, as Copeland says, illegally, by bringing Jesus, who had not sinned, into the realm of death and hell. God then had the legal right to fill Jesus up with his faith power. And in the words of Copeland, quote, suddenly his twisted, death-wracked spirit began to fill out and come back to life. And Jesus was born again, the firstborn of the dead, and he whipped the devil in his own backyard. When a man accepts the word of God, this is Copeland, he is born again and becomes like Jesus. It's not that you have God in you, you actually become a little God. To quote Copeland again, As a born-again believer, you are equipped with the Word. You have the power of God at your disposal. By getting the Word deep into your spirit and speaking it boldly out of your mouth, you release spiritual power to change things in the natural circumstances. The basic principle of Christian life is to know that God put our sin, sickness, disease, sorrow, grief, and poverty on Jesus at Calvary. Copeland says, for him to put any of this on us now would be a miscarriage of justice. Copeland goes on, you have the same creative faith and ability on the inside of you that God used when he created the heavens and the earth. Quote, when you get to the place where you take the word of God and build an image on the inside of you and not having crippled legs and not having blind eyes, but when you close your eyes you just see yourself, just leap out of that wheelchair, it will picture that in the Holy of Holies, and you will come out of there. Words create pictures. Pictures in your mind create words, he says. And then the words come back out of your mouth, and when that spiritual force comes out of it, going to it, it gives substance to that image that's on the inside of you. So how about a little critique? Let's begin with the concept of faith. Faith is an English word used often to translate the Greek word pistis, which is used in the Greek of the New Testament basically in the same way we in modern American English use the words trust or belief. I avoid the word faith here so it doesn't get confused. Power is an entirely different word in New Testament Greek, dynamis. Any of you who are at Holy Transfiguration today heard the deacon proclaim, Dynamis, power. The only relationship that belief or trust has to power is that it enables you to act with confidence. But it does not have any power in and of itself. For example, if I'm walking in a dark room and I, I remember, I think I remember, that the light switch is here, I walk in that direct, direction and lift my hand and wave at it until I hit it. Right? I have a confidence, a trust, a belief that it's where I thought it was or remember it being last time. Okay, So a belief or trust is not the actual force that enables you to turn the light on. It gives you the confidence to act, sure, but it is not a power in that sense. That Christians are supposed to be perfectly healthy and comfortable, comfortably wealthy, is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this, 
God created man to live with him in paradise forever, like a father with his children. And we messed it up. We chose death rather than life. We chose to walk away from the source of life, our loving Father. And in doing that, like a lamp plugged into a wall that pulls away, the light bulb goes out. Death is not a punishment for our sin. It is the result of our action, our turning away from the source of life. But God is a loving Father. And like any of you who are loving fathers, when you see your children turn away in disobedience, you go after them to bring them back. And so God did this, and that is called salvation history. And in Jesus Christ, who died and rose from the dead, and we who are baptized into him, we are restored to newness of life. As St. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, you who are baptized into Christ are buried with him. You die with him, are buried with him, and are raised to newness of life. And then St. Paul goes on to say in chapter 8, we only await then the adoption of sons our bodies, right? We then await our physical death and resurrection and the end of time. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he came to solve the problem of death and sin and baptism in the church and the sacraments that is solved, preparing us for eternal life in a restored paradise at the end of time. A restoration of the original Edenic plan of God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not that you will be perfectly healthy or perfectly wealthy. And the Christian who is walking in the ways of Jesus may be healthy, may be comfortably wealthy, but may not have either of these. It all depends upon the will of our loving Father who provides precisely what we need for the betterment of our souls and preparation for that eternal life with Him. What loving Father gives to His child whatever He asks? That's not love. Imagine your child asks you for ice cream for dinner. Okay. How about a candy bar? Okay. Imagine a father who gave his child anything they wanted. He would be creating a monster, right? That's not what a loving father does. A loving father gives what is best for the child, what is needed. Yes, it is true that Jesus said what he said in Mark chapter 11, that is, pray. And if you ask in faith, this will come to pass. But it has to be understood in light of what John the Apostle said in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, John told us that we are to ask and pray and hope for the things we need. And God will give us anything we ask for when it is in accordance with His will. Just as you as a parent give to your child when it is in accordance with your will as you look out for their best interest. That's 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. Think of the life of St. Paul. In fact, let's read his own autobiography in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If there was any great man of faith in the early church, 
you would think St. Paul might be that portrait, right? Great man of faith, and the one from whom we're reading some of his epistles in those earlier quotes, like from Ephesians. So 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, this is Paul's autobiography. Chapter 11, verse 22, he says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. That is, he shouldn't have to reason with them in this way, he says. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I received the hands of the Jews, the forty lashes, less one. Three times I have, been, I have been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned three times. I have been shipwrecked a night and a day. I have been adrift at, at sea and on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren, in toil, hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, doesn't sound like the prosperity gospel here, in cold, <laughs> exposure, and apart from the other things, I love this last line, after that long catalog, and apart from the other things, Father Joseph and Father Charles can relate to this, there is the daily pressure upon me of my anxiety for all the churches. So he, and on top of all that, he has to worry about the Christians that he serves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul goes on. In, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, he says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, he says, for I make up in my body the sufferings which are lacking in the church, in the body of Christ. Very different from Kenneth Copeland. What, but this was not just St. Paul's life. Let's look at what he told the newly formed churches in his journeys. As you go throughout Acts of the Apostles, Paul warns the Christians. In Acts chapter 14, at the end of that chapter, he says, it says that when he formed these new communities in Asia Minor, he told them that they would only enter into the kingdom of God through great tribulation and suffering. Doesn't sound like Kenneth Hagin's gospel. So let's conclude then this talk with two starkly contrasting figures, which I think sums it all up well enough. We have Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, born in a cave where animals slept and ate. Any of you have farm animals? I have chickens in California. I don't like to go into that chicken house. It's messy. It stinks. I got to wear boots. I usually send the kids in there to do it. So <laughs> this is where Jesus was born. This is where he was born, in a cave where farm animals were, in the straw. Um, is this the same thing as slaying in the spirit? Uh, you do see Benny Hinn doing that stuff and a few of the other guys. Uh, the question is, slain in the spirit, is this the same as slain in the spirit? Slain in the spirit is a is an idea you hear in among Pentecostals mainly, Assembly of God, in the Protestant world in general, but primarily among Pentecostals and Assembly of God, which is actually uh, related in some ways to some of these individuals. These individuals are, for the most part, rejected today by mainline American Protestantism, if you can say there's a mainline. 
But, uh, but in, in, in Pentecostal circles, Assembly of God circles, these individuals are often accepted. So if you find them being invited, say, to a local mega church, it's probably because it's a Pentecostal church or something like that. So slain in the spirit is the individual, uh, the preacher, is preaching so fervently or lays their hands upon an individual. And as a result, the spirit of God is channeled into this individual and they go unconscious. They wipe out. Now, if you watch this happening, in fact, a couple of these videos, if you kept watching them, you'd see some of it happening. Uh, it's a, um, you can see it's an act in many cases. It's drama. They want to fit in. Uh, but in some places you see it and there's something demonic happening. Uh, I saw on one of the videos a woman with a little boy. The little boy couldn't have been more than five, four or five years old. And the, uh, and the preacher was waxing eloquently and then blessed them all or something. They all fell over. And the woman was standing over her child, this little boy, again, four or five years old, okay? Not a good actor at this point. And he's vibrating like he's in seizure on the ground. And his mother's looking over at him with her hand on him, you know, probably a little worried. Uh, so there would be a case probably, as I think is the case in many of these situations, and as that exorcist suggested, and people who have gotten out of these movements that I've talked to, suggest that there is some demonic influence happening, oppression, possession, happening in some of these meetings. And so that's, you do see some of this in these meetings, for sure, especially with Benny Hinn. You'll never find slain in the spirit in the New Testament. Okay. <laughs> especially with the Jesus Seminar, in denying the New Testament historicity, what are the ramifications in the rest of the Old Testament and other historical events and characters found in the Bible? Oh, yeah, they have no interest in the Old Testament at all. It's all fabrication. Uh, even that Abraham, whether or not he was a historical figure. So, the, uh, yeah, the event, the Exodus, forget it. Moses, probably never existed. Abraham, highly unlikely. So um, the Babylonian exile, probably something there. Uh, not the way it was explained. They were conquered, they were taken, but the reasons they're given in the Bible were not the reasons that, it, they were political, purely political reasons. So the post-Enlightenment biblical scholarship, German Protestant biblical scholarship, had already rejected completely the entire Old Testament as any kind of historical document. Then they turned to the New Testament. And the first one they shot at was Matthew, and then eventually the later epistles of Paul. And the only thing that was left floating on the surface that they hadn't dunked was the Gospel of Mark, which eventually started to sink too for most of them, and then uh, Romans and Galatians. As Catholics, uh, how ought we interpret the verses in Scripture that say that those who believe will do great things, um, amazing things, drink poison and not die? Absolutely, absolutely. We see in the, in the New Testament, Jesus saying, you will do greater things than these. He says in the New Testament, have faith and pray, and if you are confident in, in your hope, then this will come to pass. But that has to be understood in light of the whole model. Uh, this is Jesus speaking to, the, to his disciples, and these disciples are children of God. God is their loving Father. 
And so when you ask in accord with the will of your heavenly Father, as the apostle said in 1 John chapter 5, then God will give you that for which you ask when it is in accord with his will. If your child comes to you and says, Daddy, will you take me to church today? Sure, sure, yeah, Sunday, let's go, right? Daddy, can I have more broccoli for dinner? Okay, we'll pick some more up at the store next time, right? Daddy, can I uh, go to the ACDC concert uh, that's happening down the street? No, right? You give to your child the things that will help them grow up into your image and likeness, right? To be like you are, as you are like your Heavenly Father. So you give to your child what they need. When they ask in accordance with your will, and you know what is best for them, then you give them what they ask for. So you talked about the prosperity gospel. Um, I think the number one guy right now preaching that is uh, Joel Osteen. And uh, he's, actually, he's really entertaining to listen to. Um, and of course, I can discern what prosperity gospel is and what is actually valid in what he says. Um, but sometimes I think, you know, in Catholicism, there, people are not very clear about what blessings are. And Joel Osteen sometimes is very clear about that. It's just he takes it too far. Um, so I can see a lot of people being seduced by him. So what do you say to a, a Catholic? Is like, why don't, why don't we hear that at church? It sounds so great, talking about blessings, and 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 he does it so well. What what would you say to like the average deacon priest about when they speak about blessings and making it something attractive? Yeah. Uh, so two things. First of all, there is always some truth mixed in with the lies, right? Did God really say that you cannot eat from any of the trees of the garden? Well, okay, how do I unravel that one? So there's, yeah, wait, I can eat of the trees, but not this one, right? So there's a little element of truth there. And you'll find as you're watching, even these videos, if you continue watching them, you'll find somewhere around maybe 5% or 10% of what they're saying is basic Christian, or at least is in accord with basic Christian doctrine, uh, that there is a God, that he created, us, uh, that um, Jesus Christ is his son, though they don't mean that in the way that we would understand that. Uh, so there, there are some, it, I remember uh, listening to Kenneth Copeland, he was quoting from Mark chapter 11, that text we looked at, where Jesus goes on and says, and forgive those that have offended you, right? Offend, uh, forgive those who are in debt to you. Jesus goes on to say that in that next line, uh, verse 38, I think. So. He preached on that at that moment and said, we need to not only have faith and speak the word in faith, but we need to forgive all those who offended us, all those who have wronged us, even those that have not wronged us. Let's forgive them anyway, just in case they ever do wrong us. Okay? So he said, all right, wow, that's kind of neat. You know, forgive, forgive, forgive. Yeah, that's, that's in accordance with our, our faith. So because they're quoting from the scriptures, they do stumble upon a few nuggets of truth along the way. And if you watch Joel Olstein, I'm sure you might listen. If you're well-educated and able to discern, you might be able to grab a few nuggets of Christian truth there. But I wouldn't recommend it. There are some much more efficient ways to spend your time studying Scripture. One would be just to turn that TV off and open your Bible, right? Uh, two, 
there are all sorts of other resources out there. Uh, and that actually brings me to, I should have mentioned it last time uh, at the end of the talk, but I uh, was so entertained by, <laughs> by Tilton, I forgot. There, uh, if you know anybody who is involved in this movement, if you know anyone who, is, who has been seduced by these individuals, then I highly recommend to you, not here N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright doesn't deal with these kind of guys, I would recommend to you Hank Hennegraff's book. Hank Hennegraff, I mentioned to you Hank Hennegraff yesterday if you were there. Hennegraff, that's spelled H-A-N-E, H-A-N-E-G-R-A-A-F. Maybe another F, I can't remember, I think he's Swedish or something. So Hank Hennegraff, the Bible Answer Man, he's devoted a lot of his ministry to fighting the word faith movement. And he wrote a great book called Christianity in Crisis in 1993, where he showed that this movement is taking over American Christianity and also eventually over Protestantism in the world and having a, obviously a very negative effect. And so he calls it Christianity in Crisis. He sees, he sees Protestantism heading towards a shipwreck. He advocates, rather, what he calls historic Christianity, reliance upon the scriptures and the first seven ecumenical councils as a guide for what is called orthodox Christianity, in his words, as a Protestant. He also wrote another book, which I read, called Counterfeit Revival, which I actually gave that book to somebody who was struggling with this stuff, and it helped them. So Counterfeit Revival is a, the second book he wrote on that subject. Christianity in Crisis, Counterfeit Revival by Hank Hennegraaff. It's an excellent resource because most of the people who are seduced by this stuff are actually Protestants. Catholics too, but mo many of your Protestant friends who are not going to want to read a Catholic author necessarily. You give them Hank Hennegraaff, who's a Protestant, and they're more readily uh, going to read it and receive it. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.